0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Garden State of Hockey podcast. We're back from a uh, you know personal life hiatus and also lack of devil's news hiatus because we've gotten a lot in the last couple of weeks, both league-related and specifically devil's-related. And to help me make sense of all of that as usual is John Fisher. How are you doing, John?
1: I'm doing well. How are you doing, Dan?
0: I'm doing well. I'm back in the Garden State. It feels good. Feels good to be closer to our Devils, and it feels good to still be watching playoff hockey um, in September when there would be preseason hockey at this point. But obviously the circumstances have dictated it as such, and we have two pretty good conference finals going right now and uh, some pretty surprising teams that maybe people didn't expect. But in terms of the Devils implications, they're emotional only at this point because there are former Devils uh, on several of the teams remaining in the conference finals. However, in terms of actual implications for the Devils, they have locked in the 7th overall pick, the 18th overall pick, and the 20th overall pick by virtue of Vancouver's loss to Vegas in the conference semifinal.
1: That's right, and that was uh, a contentious one since they were one of three series in the second round that went from a 3-1 series lead for one team and it ended up being decided in a Game 7. Um, So credit to Vegas for finally cracking Thatcher Demko and Robin Leonard playing better than Thatcher Demko in game seven. Uh, Otherwise, that pick would be 27. I'm sorry, 28th or 29th overall. And that would be sad. Mm -hmm. That would be very, very sad. So thank you, Vegas, for knocking out Vancouver. You know, that was the last remaining implication for the New Jersey Devils with respect to future events. Um, involving a playoff that the Devils themselves are not a part of. Mm-hmm.
0: And meanwhile, we got some uh, emotional help on the other side from Andy Green and GM of the year, Lou Morello's New York Islanders, <laughs> as they took out the Flyers in seven games and prevented the true Devils nightmare scenario from recurring.
1: That's right. Uh, the second-rate rivals, um, they did fight valiantly. Again, they were they were down in this series 3-1. to one and, Down and looked kind
0: out, to be honest with you.
1: Yeah, and Philadelphia has a history of, you know, being on the wrong side of those types of series. <laughs> but, um, you know, they were making a push back, and Carter Hart started looking like a goaltender, um, among other factors. But thankfully, the second-rate rivals, with everything to play for, and in, in some sense, then nothing to lose, decided they had everything to lose. And just kind of hit under a blanket and <laughs> instead of playing the game of hockey, as the Islanders just kind of rolled through them in game seven. So we don't have to worry about our hated rivals winning any trophies this season, our second rate rivals winning any trophies this season. And while Islanders fans can definitely be annoying when their team is actually good, uh, of all the possible scenarios, them going further is the least bad one. So Credit to the Islanders. We'll see in a couple days whether or not Tampa Bay dumps them or not, but hey, whoever thought they were going to be in the final four.
0: Yeah, and the same can go for Dallas, honestly, because the way they started the bubble and the way they played into the bubble was uh, looked like it was going to be a pretty good indicator that they were not going to go that much further in the playoffs, that they had a good start of the regular season then just kind of fizzled out, but they found something in that Calgary series and carried it through, managed to beat Colorado in seven games, who was, you know, the prohibitive favorite for a lot of people. And they're, as we speak now, they're up 3-1 on Vegas. Uh, I'll say John Merrill's Vegas, so we keep the devil's implications going. Um. Yeah, he
1: had the one appearance so far that played less than 14 minutes. (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. And then on the other side, the Islanders and Lightning, as you alluded to, right now it's a 2-1 series. They play tonight when we record, so we could either be Uh, In a situation where the Islanders have their backs against the wall, or this series ends up going a lot longer for uh, Andy Green, Blake Coleman, and Patrick Maroon, if we're talking former Devils.
1: That's right. And of course, general manager of the year, Lou Lamorello.
0: Right, exactly. And it's been cool to watch so far. There's a lot of... It's interesting that to think about how much the bubble environment influenced these specific teams being able to get out and how that would have changed had it been a normal playoff season and obviously you know there would have been a different scenario set up for teams even playing in we never would have seen the montreal canadians even sniff the playoffs for example but you know credit to these teams that made it through it takes a lot of mental toughness to play in this setting as well
1: and, and a lot of credit should especially go to the islanders because they're the only team in this final four where they actually had to go through a play-in series like their spot in the Postseason was not at all guaranteed, Mm -hmm. but, you know, they rampaged through that uh, play in series and then they um, rampaged further into the first round and um, they survived a big, big scare because, again, they were up on Philadelphia three to three to one in that series. Mm -hmm. And Philadelphia going into this postseason, I think a lot of people thought that they were a um, they were a popular pick to go all the way. Which is why, for us as Devils fans, it was pleasing to see the Philadelphia Flyers fail miserably and win as many trophies as the Devils did this season.
0: And it's easy to, you know, retroactively say that, oh, the Capitals didn't care all that much in the bubble based on some uh, reporting that we've seen around that, you know, they weren't taking it that seriously. They just kind of made it into a vacation. But that's easy to say when you see what the Islanders did to them the entire time anyway. So,
1: yeah. Again, but better better that than admitting. Yeah, we got destroyed by Barry Trotz, right, our right. former coach. <laughs> yeah,
0: that they didn't want to pay. So that's neither here nor there. As Todd Reardon was fired in the bubble and immediately hired outside the bubble, as well as an, as, as an assistant coach in Pittsburgh. And one of Pittsburgh's assistant coaches and a former Pittsburgh assistant coach uh, have some implications. On New Jersey's squad, as Lindy Ruff has picked his first assistant coach officially uh, in Mark Recchi.
1: That's right, and Mark Recchi, he's a lifer. Like this man has played 22 NHL seasons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's in the top 10 all time for games played. And then right after he's done with that, you know what he does? He doesn't just sit around and enjoy, you know, retirement. No, he goes right into coaching. He was a developmental coach for three seasons and then got bumped up to being an assistant for Pittsburgh, primarily working on the power play. And as noted through different articles, the Devil's Insiders on Twitter and others, uh, the power play under Mark Recchi in those three seasons was was pretty good. It did have some uh, hiccups this past season, and I can understand if your team has Crosby and Malkin, that could be a cause of a concern of why your power play is having issues. But at the same time, you want a guy to improve your power play? Well, he did it in Pittsburgh. It's not a bad idea to do so. And of course he brings a wealth of experience between again, 22 NHL seasons as a player. And in addition to that being another six seasons behind the bench at the NHL level. So um, this is a positive hire.
0: Yeah. That seems like a, the trend that the devils are going for now with their coaching staff. Whereas the last staff was full of, you know, first time NHL coaches 1st uh, first time, coaching experience of any kind um first time you know former players appearing behind the bench but now the devils are going for players with either a lot of like you know personnel with a lot of nhl experience and coaching experience or just years and years and years of being behind the bench to try and get these young kids to a place where they know the rigors of the league a little better and it's it's in stark contrast to the last philosophy of coach hiring that the devils went through so I'm interested to see how the personalities will mesh. I think that with this movement towards experience, they're really trying to get the young kids up to speed as fast as possible.
1: Yep. And again, the power play definitely does need help. Mm-hmm. You know, the power play was not that good. And yes, I understand the Devils are a bad hockey team, not a mediocre team. Mm-hmm. They were a bad hockey team the better part of the last five seasons with, of course, the one exception being the 2017-18 campaign for obvious heart reasons. Um, but the reality is the Devils have still on their roster Kyle Palmieri, Nico Heischer, Nikita Gusev, Jack Hughes, Jesper Bratt, P.K. Subban, Will Butcher, and Damon Severson. You have the pieces to put together a competent power play. I'm not saying it needs to be a top five power play in the league, but it can be a lot better than you know hanging out in the bottom five or the bottom ten. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think a different look was absolutely necessary. Recchi coming in from another organization. And again, as much as Pittsburgh's power play, quote unquote, had struggles last season, they were still by almost every metric better than New Jersey's last season. So (laughs) this is an upgrade in that regard. And I think somebody else coming in with a different look and with a wealth of experience could definitely – you know, deserves a shot at least to put the puzzle pieces together in something that looks more like an actual man advantage as opposed to a waste of two minutes, which was a lot of the cases under Mr. Kowalski.
0: Mm-hmm. And in terms of other coaches that won't be returning behind the bench specifically, uh, we have Rick Kowalski, Mike Greer, and um, looks like Elaine Nazardine is staying on in some capacity but more on that in a second really melanson the goaltending coach is not going to be returning which to me screams a harbinger of Corey schneider just not being back in any capacity next year since that was kind of his guy
1: yes and no i mean you know the nhl is not really a player driven league in terms of like the player decides who the coaches are and who management is this is not like say the nba where you know the brooklyn nets hire a you know, Steve Nash, because Kevin Durant is friends with Steve Nash and Kevin Durant is a Brooklyn net and essentially is running the team. Um, of course, Jack Eichel has attempted to do this in Buffalo to very little success. Nevertheless, yeah, they did not renew the contracts of those three coaches. Kowalski, Greer and Melinson are effectively free agents right now, according to Randy Miller of NJ.com. Um, the Dells are talking to Kowalski and Greer to stay in the organization in some capacity. I don't know what that would be because I can't imagine not being an assistant coach in New Jersey would be anything but a downgrade. But I don't know what the conversations are. I don't know what Fitzgerald or others are speaking to these guys about. But melinson is is looking like he's just straight up not coming back. Mm-hmm. Whether or not Schneider, you know, I, I, you know, the contract is just too big and and with the salary cap staying flat i can't imagine teams are going to be chomping at the bit to eat a bad cap hit just for a pick or just to you know rebuild especially since the devils are could be one of those teams to do exactly that mm-hmm. so i think schneider's sticking around but yeah i can't imagine he's going to be super happy that mellinson is not coming back but again maybe you need a different coach to come in and a different perspective and Really, really, the the answer is going to be, you know, can this coach really work with Mackenzie Blackwood? Yeah, that's going to be the real, you know, sticking point here.
0: That's it. That's exactly it. And you figure that while Blackwood's still young and still inherently coachable, he hasn't developed the same kinds of bad habits that, say, at, you know, 35 or more year old goalie would develop and not be able to kick at a certain point. Blackwood is still plenty moldable and the Devils ideally are trying to get a backup from uh I mean, wherever it'll come from this year, but if if it comes from within the organization, they have a chance to work with this new coach and have some sort of consistency with that. That's only a bonus.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, we'll see, because we're going to find out actually very soon what what the Devils are going to do with respect to getting that backup goaltender and getting any other player into their system, because the NHL has decided... That the first week of October, the first full week of October, Dan, is going to be a plethora of hockey.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's going to – it's going to pretty much be hockey news in the news cycle for that one week until um, things pick up in other sports too. And, you know, football started back up and it's just – crazy to even think about that existing right now but hockey's first week of october should be pretty busy between uh the announced start of free agency and the updated draft dates which were moved up by a day
1: Mhm. so for for the for those of you who are wondering more what in the world are we talking about so the nhl draft for 2020 is going to happen on october 6th and october 7th um as with most drafts in past history uh recent history i should say it's going to be a two-day affair where night one is going to be just for the first round that's going to be at 7 p.m on october 6th uh that's eastern standard time um and then rounds two through seven are going to start at 11 30 a.m and just like with past drafts those those picks are just going to be flying because got you know teams have their draft boards and as you go deeper into the rounds you're just throwing you're just going with who your scouts like and who you liked on paper and throwing darts at a wall. So, um, you know, the only other major difference is that it's going to be virtual. So you're not going to have thousands of people in an arena. There's not going to be a green room. You're not going to see 17 and 18 year olds wearing suits for seemingly the first or second time in their life. You're not going to see Mort Cedar and his weird haircut with his bow tie. Um, okay. I'm dating myself a little bit with that reference, but the point is, is that, um, the six, you know, it's going to be a Tuesday night and a Wednesday afternoon yeah. is where we're going to decide all this. And that actually harkens back to the old days of the draft where it wasn't televised or it was very limited tele- television um, coverage. And the picks were made in like a hotel conference room. And, you know, there was very little fanfare. So we'll see how the NHL handles that. And then a couple of days after that, October 9th, noon agency frenzy mm-hmm. that's right not a Saturday not a Sunday take that three-day weekend you know PTO or take a day off call in sick because at nine October 9th noon all the decisions are going to be happening and it's literally going to be two days after the NHL draft so I imagine there's going to be tons of rumors trades uh, decisions being made quote-unquote talks you're not supposed to have On October 8th, on Thursday. So that whole week from October 4th through, uh, I would even say October 10th, uh, the day after free agency, the first day of free agency, there's just going to be tons of news, players changing. You've got reports of teams having internal caps with the uh, salary uh, cap being flat. Uh, But some teams, since there's no fans, there's no revenue streams, they're going to, you know— Limit the bleeding, so to speak, by not going to not being a cap team. So there's probably going to be a lot more deals just for teams to try to make some bank, make some space uh, that you ordinarily wouldn't see. And we already got one of those just recently with Pittsburgh sending Nick Bukestad to Minnesota and for some inexplicable reason, um, retaining half of his salary. Uh, Yeah, and
0: we also got the first uh, negotiation rights trade of the off season as Joel Edmondson went from Carolina to Montreal or his rights did rather when his contract expires during this, um, during this next couple of weeks, but they do have the exclusive negotiating rights for the cost of a fifth round pick. So if they, if they and, want and, him, and, they get to talk yeah. to him.
1: And of course, who wouldn't want exclusive rights to Joel Edmondson?
0: Well, for I mean, a fifth, like if you value him that much, I guess, why not? But, I wonder if the Devils will make any of those kinds of negotiation deals. I don't really think they have to. I don't think they're in any particular rush for a free agent. Um, And you mentioned the not spending to the cap teams. I believe the Devils will be one of them, not necessarily mentioned in the Frank uh, Saravelli report, but um, Todd Cordell of Infernal Access seemed to have sources that said that they would be one of the teams not spending to the cap, which for the Devils is by no means the worst thing at all because they have plenty of space already. It's just a matter of what's the maximum amount they could have and what's the maximum amount they actually need.
1: Exactly. And the Devils haven't been a cap team for quite some time. It's not because Josh Harris is poor and doesn't want to spend money. I mean, the dude you know, was a negotiation to buy the Mets. (laughs) Like he owns a share of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Like the guy is wheeling and dealing in the world of sports. And as we know, he's not short on cash. Uh, He's got billions to play with. But the reality is if your team is not good and you don't think your team is going to be good anytime soon, the worst thing you want to do is spend a lot of money and cap yourself out. You don't want to be a team like say Arizona where they literally are, You know, barely a million dollars of cap space, and you know that's before they have to re-sign their RFAs. Mm -hmm. Not even the UFA. You know, the big one being Taylor Hall, but just retaining Christian Fisher, Vinny Henestrosa, and Ilya Labushkin, assuming they all get NHL deals, and they probably will because they were in the NHL at some point over the past couple seasons. Not to mention Adam Hill, you know, third-string goaltender. The minimum salary in the NHL right now is seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. Guess what? one of these contracts will put you just right below the cap. Yep. Yep. And is Arizona going to be a good team next season? Hell no, they're not going to be a good team next season. <laughs> this is a team that, you know, they're going to have to eat some terrible deals just to clear up some space. Um, it's entirely possible. They could do so. So since they got plenty of contracts coming off the books for 2021 and 2022, the following season, but again, they're going to have to eat some crummy deals just to get out of this. and, They're still not going to be any good. So, you know, I don't blame anybody who thinks – well, let me rephrase that. If you think it's a bad thing the Devils are going to have a limited cap, an internal cap, so to speak, again, the Devils aren't likely going to do anything next season. They're not going to probably be a playoff bubble team. We just are hoping they're going to play some meaningful games in early March, and maybe that will be it. Like that may be the level of progress that you need to make. Yeah. But – You don't need to spend $30 million on free agents to get there.
0: No, no. And this is a thing where you have this year basically to say, okay, who in the organization is actually worth keeping around and which slots do we really need to fill with free agents um, moving forward since there's a lot of – youth that could be pushing for lineup spots for regular lineup spots and consistency. Absolutely. There's, there's the the ideal of what you want to see is to see guys like Nolan Foote, Ty Smith and uh Kevin Ball compete for the roster, for the main roster and that way you don't have to, you know, spend a lot of money or overspend on expensive free agents. You could just have players play into that role. But again, it, it remains to be seen how everything will mesh, especially with new systems in place from Lindy Ruff. It's It's interesting to see his uh, high-octane offense Dallas Stars in the semifinal now.
1: Absolutely, and on top of that, since the one other bit of news from Mr. Miller is that – Mr. Randy Miller, I should say – is that Elaine Nazardine is returning to the bench. Mm -hmm. He's going to be kept on as an assistant, which – and I'm going to write about this more in detail on Monday, so by the time the show gets up, that will be already posted. But let's let's talk about that for a bit, Dan, because I think that's this is important here.
0: Okay, yeah. And so he, you know, people gave Nazardine a lot of credit for uh, the turnaround the devils had. Realistically, that was mostly on Mackenzie Blackwood as we saw. And as you've written about, as uh, many people have written about, the actual impact that Nazardine had was negligible at absolute best.
1: I wouldn't see, even say it was negligible. It was bad. Mm-hmm. Like this team was – if this team was a bad hockey team under Hines in terms of five-on-five five metrics, in terms of other you know, expected goals, in terms of allowing shots, even in terms of allowing um, you know, high danger chances, this team was absolutely abysmal. This team was drowning in the run of play. And as, as you pointed out, Mackenzie Blackwood was the main reason why they won a whole bunch of games. Mm-hmm. Um, just to throw some numbers at you. The Devils' defense, if you look at their against-rate stats, you know how many attempts are they allowing, the rate of shots they're allowing, the rate of uh, scoring chances they're allowing, they were pretty bad in the 23 games under John Hines last season. Under the 43 games where Nazardine was the head coach and maybe had to delegate some of his responsibilities to somebody else to run the defense because he was the head coach, Mm -hmm. they were almost as bad as Ottawa. Like, they somehow went from bad to legitimately worse. Mm-hmm. And I understand they traded Andy Green in February, but it's 43 games here. Missing Andy Green for 10 games was not the killing blow to the defense here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the team was consistent in, in its badness. And that's my main concern about retaining Nazardine to run the defense and the penalty kill. Because as great as the penalty kill is, Dan, you're only going to be on a penalty kill for what? Like two, four, six minutes a game?
0: I mean, ideally, right? Like,
1: Yeah, could, ideally you shouldn't be on the penalty kill at all.
0: <laughs> it, could, it could definitely be a lot more given what we've seen from uh, the Devils in the past.
1: True. I mean, if Subban and Severson and Wood are going to continue to be penalty machines, then yeah. Okay, maybe you do need a really good penalty kill mm-hmm. uh, structure. But the thing here is that you're – even in those cases, Dan, you're still going to be in five-on-five five more often than not. And if you're getting killed in five-on-five – five, you need your you either need your goaltender to be absolutely amazing, and on some nights even that won't be enough. That's not going to help the Devils get better. And as much as there's much, there's definitely a chicken and the egg argument. You know, do you have the Jimmys and the Joes uh, to run the X's and O's? You know, I'd be a lot more sympathetic to that argument of you know the Devils just don't have good defensemen if Nazardine was like a first-time assistant coach running the defense, like if he was brand new to the organization or he's only been here for a season or two. But he's been John Hines' guy for the last five seasons. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He's personally witnessed the defense go from good to below average to just plain bad. You would think that if he didn't have the players to run the systems he wants to run, he could tell John Hines, who, again – has been working with for the better part of a decade to say, hey, I don't have the guys I need. Could you talk to Ray about getting the guys that we need? And it's not like Ray Shero sat on his butt and did nothing over the last five seasons. There's been a lot of turnover on the defense. Mm-hmm. However, so so I'm not really sympathetic to the argument of, well, Nazardine and the Devils just don't have good defense, so what do you expect? And, and I'm thinking here, coaches have a lot more influence on how a team performs just look at the Islanders right now. Even look at Dallas, you know, or or Las Vegas, where their metrics got a lot better when Peter DeBoer came aboard. Barry Trotz helped turn the Islanders into a really difficult team to play against. Dallas, yes, they're still a fairly high octane team, and yeah, they're currently winning because Anton Kudobin's playing out of his mind. But they got to this point by playing a, four, a more balanced style, which has helped them tr- tremendously. Coaches matter is my main point here, and Nazardine has not shown the evidence that he's actually any good at coaching the defense. (laughs) Yeah, and the
0: the other issue is that we know that Lindy Ruff is coming from coaching the Rangers defense, and a lot of people pointed to that and said, well, how can you trust this guy? He's going to have to delegate that. But then you see the Rangers defense in the bubble, and you suddenly understand that maybe it wasn't all his fault, and maybe that's something that he's taking at least part of. Uh, for himself but yeah it's important to find a good defensive coach because that's been an area where they've been severely lacking like the the goalies being what they were for the beginning of the season had a lot to do with the devils just exposing them over and over and over and over, and over again
1: absolutely and this was even the case on the penalty kill uh this is one of the more surprising things i found dan is that the penalty kill in, again, in the twenty-three games before John John Hines was fired, the penalty kill had a t- was twenty-third in the league in success rate. However, if you look a little closer at the metrics, they were like a top five team in every every rate except one, which was save percentage. Guess what? Blackwood learning to make some saves makes that penalty kill the literally the best one in the I'm sorry, the best one in the league while Nazian was head coach. Mm-hmm. Like an 80% success rate. And the metrics actually got a little bit better, which implies the fact that a, what Nasruddin put into place has been very effective, but also B, maybe Nasruddin doesn't need to be the guy. You just need to do what he has been doing. <laughs> and just, you know, anybody else could run that. I don't know who was in charge of the PK while uh, Nasruddin was the head coach per se. I don't know if he delegated those responsibilities. Maybe he did it in name only to Mike Greer or uh, Peter Horacek, who was a scout. Um, But the fact of the matter is, um, you know, you can't tell me that the guys cannot cannot you can't tell me that the best penalty killing team in the league or one of the best penalty killing teams in the league are just not good enough to play five on five defense. Like something was not right. Right. And so something so it's so that's my big concern of having Nazardine return, because he's probably gonna look at this and go, Well, my handiwork is clearly justified because I'm back and the other guys are not. So What do I need to change?
0: Well, it's curious about Greer, too, because he's someone who played for Lindy Ruff for a long time, and usually that in the NHL is enough of a criteria to keep someone on the staff, but uh, even if he doesn't come back, as you said, with uh, Kowalski as coaches necessarily, they might not be coaches in Binghamton either. They can move to scouting, potentially, they could do some consulting work a la Brodeur um, with the GM if if that's something that they feel is more valuable, but than you know having them behind the bench but i'm curious to see what those roles look like i can definitely see uh greer specifically you know for for obvious reasons being part of some uh, diversity initiative that the devils uh, put forward with you know in conjunction with pk and that's something that i know they've been working on and i know has been recognized around the league uh, particularly from the new jersey devils
1: well, if that was the case, they would just keep him as an assistant coach because that would be the best place for that. It, um, it just
0: depends on what he can do from the position of assistant coach as opposed to having like an official community-facing role.
1: Right, but my, I'm of the opinion that if Kowalski, Greer, and Melanson, you know, if they if they want to be head coaches one day, and Kowalski was a head coach in Binghamton, mm-hmm. so you know, I think it's fair to I think it's fair to think that he may want to stay as a coach. And Greer, this was his first coaching job, if I'm not mistaken, out out, you know, I yeah, think he I was a scout so. prior to this. So, you know, if they have aspirations for coaching and the devils are telling them, well, we don't want you to be an assistant coach, but how about this other role that's not again, it's a downgrade. Cause if you're an assistant coach uh, there's only a couple ways to go up. One of them is to become a head coach <laughs> and another is to be a head coach of the minor league team, which is what John McClain ended up doing years back. But I doubt they're going to do that since Mark Dennehy, seems to be pretty secure in Binghamton and the turnaround they had in Binghamton should more than justify him staying on in that role. I can't say going from assistant to New Jersey to assistant in Binghamton is anything but a downgrade. Yeah. Um so if I were in those shoes, I would say, "Well, thanks Devils, but if I'm getting assistant coach offers from other teams, like say Pittsburgh since they have three openings now, um you know, I'm going to go to Pennsylvania or If other coaching staffs are going to be, you know, you know, changed over and we've seen that, you know, in other playoff settings, you know, um, we could definitely see uh, a lot of coaching movement. So if I were Greer Kowalski and especially Melanson, I would wait. I would not take any offer until like, say, you know, after free agency ends and then see, Okay, do I really if I want to be an assistant coach? The opportunities are here. I'm going to go where the opportunities are. It's not New Jersey anymore.
0: Yeah, and that's really the question if they want to still be coaches in general. I think that's that's like a big thing that we really will have no insight on until they either announce new roles within the Devils organization or say they're moving on elsewhere. Um, but, yeah, you're right. Denny, he's not going anywhere. The, there's no. no reason based on the job he did for the last couple of months in Binghamton. And, um, I, you know <laughs> – if you're talking about coaches in waiting, if you don't think Lindy Ruff is a long-term solution, they just hired a guy who would probably be chomping at the bit for the same kind of opportunity in Mark Reckie. Like He's he's who feels like a coach in waiting almost. And
1: it, Well, yeah, 22 years as a player, six, six years as a coach. He went from developmental coach to assistant coach.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that's developmental – credentials are a big big reason why he specifically was someone that piqued lindy ruff's interest um, just given the status of the team right now there's so much development that needs to happen for them to even meet remotely close to what their potential is Um, so from that perspective we'll see how much time he gets with the kids as opposed to the head coach himself
1: right and not just necessarily the young kids but also the players let's say you know Miles Wood, I'll use, uh, he's my favorite example for this sort of thing. Like he's 25 years old. So in terms of developing as a player, you know, he's kind of, you know, what you see is what you get, but you know, even for players who are in their quote unquote peak years or beyond their peak years, or even in their thirties, you know, to stay relevant in the NHL, you need to continue to work on your game and, and make changes and adjustments as the game changes as the as your role may change, as your ice time may change, and if a coach, a develop, whether it's a developmental coach or an assistant coach or even just a, per- a consultant, um, sits down with Wood and says, "Bro, you need to stop shooting from everywhere on the ice. Like, pick your spots," you know, that's an improvement. Like, that's the sort of thing that could definitely help the Devils overall if they can have somebody sit some sit down with some of these players and say, "If you can do these different adjustments." not only will you contribute more to the Devils, you will have a longer NHL career. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, one of the nice things that the NHL has set up is that while there's a salary cap for players, there isn't one for coaches. And one thing I would love to see is that, you know, the Devils make like Toronto and recognize this (laughs) and decide to have an incredibly large coaching staff where they can have specialists and they can have that level of detail and not only work with the guys like Jesper Brat, and Michael McLeod, and you know, um, I'm just looking down the list here, you know, the Jesper Bokvises and the Yanni Kwakinins, but also even guys like Wood or guys like Will Butcher or guys even trying to get a little bit more out of the Kevin Rooney's of okay. the organization. But Zach is if there thank you. I'm I'm that's why I hesitated earlier. is a perfect example. He's 23. You know, again, you know, he's a player that you, if you can sit this guy down and say, I need you to focus on X, Y, and Z, and I'm going to drill you to do X, Y, and Z, that could help him tremendously. My favorite coaching example, Dan, I'm dating myself a little bit here, is when Larry Robinson was the assistant coach back earlier last decade. Mm-hmm. And the Devils picked up Mike Motto. Mm-hmm. And Mike Motto at the time was basically a guy. He was your number seven defenseman. He, You, know, you look at him and you go, why is he in the NHL? He's not that big. He's not strong. He's not good on the puck. He doesn't have an offensive game. Why in the world did you pick up Mike Motto for anything but having a body? But then Larry Robinson supposedly worked with Mike Motto. And you know that Larry Robinson, Dan, is a Hall of Fame defenseman. Yes. And a fantastic – and he's a fantastic teacher. If you ever have the opportunity to even talk to him, he will talk hockey with you like all day. He's one of those – he's that passionate about the game. Mike Motto turned into a top four defenseman for this team. And despite the fact that you would look at him and go, why is he playing 20 minutes? You realize at the end of the game, nothing bad happened. He stuck to his positions. He didn't take bad penalties. He handled the puck very well. He knew what his role was. Larry Robinson got more out of Mike Motto than anybody else has ever gotten out of Mike motto in his career. Cause when Mike motto left the devils getting a sweet contract after several good seasons as a solid defenseman for the devils, he did nothing. (laughs) He was a nobody again. So my point here is that having additional coaches can make a huge impact. Even if that player is not 23 and under, you know, you can do that for the 25 year olds, the 28 year olds, the 31 year olds and the 34 year olds. You may not get all stars, but can you get a slightly better player? Yeah, it's possible. So that's why we're 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 so focused on this coaching thing, and I hope that Harris, and Fitzgerald get a little creative and say, hey, we can have six assistant coaches. Why not?
0: And for many of these players, this will be their first coaching staff outside of the Hines regime. The, you know, for Zaka, for example, he's never had another um, NHL coach. And for the first overall picks, you know, as as much as they probably like the guy, they've also never had to think about playing in another system just yet. So it's interesting to see how they adapt to that and how different that looks from them, because, you know, Nico Heischer was already doing some good things, but how much more can can be unlocked in him?
1: Exactly. And not even just him. Like, look at Nikita Gusev. Mm -hmm. His first NHL coach was John Hines. And obviously it didn't end with John Hines in his first NHL season. Um, You know, Will Butcher. Always had Hines and Nazardine. Now he just has Nazardine. Uh, Blackwood, you know, yeah, he had Melanson and Hines. Well, now he's going to have, you know, Ruff and goaltender coach to be named later. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely going to be some uh, changes. To that end, I could see it as a pro to keep Nazardine as sort of somebody who could be like, provide some continuity, sort of bridge the gap between, hey, this is how we used to do things, but here's how business is going to be handled. However, I feel like you could have done that if you kept Mike Greer. Mm-hmm. So
0: it's true. But he also wasn't as long with the organization as Nazruddin has
1: been. That is true. Yeah. Nazruddin was with the Devils as long as Hines has been like he was one of Hines's first assistant coach coaching hire. So you, you're right. He does have that um, longevity in his favor. So whether or not that will be a, an asset or a benefit, uh, it remains to be seen since we're talking about preseason activities that haven't even been scheduled yet because right now we don't even know when the nhl season's gonna start
0: that's another thing i know tom fitzgerald's been working on you know lobbying the nhl to allow the teams that didn't get a chance to uh play in the play in uh, a bit of an earlier start to training camp since their players haven't gotten onto the ice in many more months than anyone else in the league so these seven teams that were left out you know, they need to find a way to make that happen because they could use the extra time that the other teams got, even just being around each other as a team, because everyone's been separated for so long that the the chemistry is bound to have struggled a little bit.
1: Absolutely. And again, say what you want about, you know, say Washington, you know, who fired their head coach and will presumably have a changeover in their assistance as well you know they can at least say hey we played hockey for a couple weeks you know we're not completely out of shape by the time we get back to preseason mm-hmm. whereas for the devils the senators the sharks etc you know they've been idle like and working off ice sure but you got to be on ice and you got to be with your teammates so i don't know if they're going to be all that successful because there's a lot of logistical problems here like can you convince players in europe to come back over just to have an extended training camp or to play exhibition games that nobody's going to care about. Like, it's one thing to say, yeah, we're going to have a tournament where we're going to have all the top teams play each other. Cool. Nobody's going to pay money or time right now, now that sports is effectively back in swing, in full swing, you know, with all the major sports in America and in Canada, you know, who's going to care about a Devils-Ducks exhibition game other than you and me?
0: The, the problem with all of that is that, you know, we say sports are back in full swing, but we have no idea how that could change as well in a very, very short time. We, we saw how quickly, um, you know, it rose up to cancel the season. And given what's been going on in our country um, from a, you know, from a pure epidemiolo- epidemiological perspective, it doesn't look like this thing's going away anytime soon. So. You know, no, they'll, they'll and, have and, to manage more bubbles. They'll have to manage uh, more people being involved across the con- across two countries.
1: Right, and we're seeing in Europe is the same same impact as well. And of course, every country is doing something different. For example, in Finland, where they started having a rise of uh, coronavirus uh, cases, Jokerit, you know, said we're quarantining ourselves, mm-hmm. and therefore they postponed five games. Whereas in the KHL, Jokerit's last opponent that played in Finland. Um, I think it was, I can't remember if it was Akbar's Kazan or Nef- Neftakimik. but they, but they said, Oh, we're just going to postpone one game and then we're going to continue playing in like three days. <laughs> like they're not quarantining at all for, for the, for the, for the full 14 day period that the virus is believed to be, you know, in, in your body and active. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you got Finland, Finland doing one thing and Russia doing another. And are you surprised? <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised, but it, you know, it's it, you got cases like in Spain. I know I'm jumping around here, but Spain, for whatever reason, is starting to have a massive increase again. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, Germany had a massive rally to end the lock, end lockdown provisions, and you know, you cases got <laughs> thousands of people all around telling you everything's okay, so open things back up, and now they're having cases rise again, like. <sighs> We unfortunately are living the Chinese proverb of we're living in interesting times.
0: Yeah, this is... It's a little too interesting if you ask me, but
1: yeah, some, some normalcy and boredom would be, would be great at right about now. Um,
0: Cool to be mundane for a day or something like that. But um, yeah, we, we never know how it'll go. And we never know what, you know, potential advancements in medicine could look like to either mitigate the risk once you get the virus or uh, preventative measures like a vaccine. Like we have no idea what the timelines are of anything. So any talk of this season going on the way it's, you know the way it's supposed to go on, and I'm sure there'll be protocols still in place uh, for most of the NHL season. We don't know. We don't know how far it can get. We don't know who will be affected. It's it's tough to get a real gauge on it. More, it, it's hard to project any sort of season because you never know how the cards will fall. I mean, just look at this past Devil season and how optimistic everyone was. But especially when the environment outside the NHL is so chaotic, it's even harder to predict from a you know human being perspective what the season will look like.
1: Yeah. And then there's also the other logistical factors of, you know, a lot, you know, the NHL is very much a gate driven league in terms of revenue and the minor leagues even more so. So, you know, if the discussion is, or what the law allows or what teams feel more comfortable with is say, well, we'll just play empty arenas. Well, that's going to be a non-starter for some organizations because they need people. Mm-hmm. They need, they need revenue. They need the ticket money, the concession money, the merch money, um, the sponsorship money. And therefore then you start asking the question of, yeah, at what point, you know, do you do we go all, go along with this or do we just wait until we can get some people back in the stands? And I know football, some football teams are doing that, some football teams are not doing that. Some soccer teams are doing that, some minor league soccer teams aren't doing that. It's like who knows.
0: And we'll see how then. that affects the football teams as well because you know, we we saw the first football game had fans in attendance. And we don't know the results of that just yet. We don't know the implications of what that event could have caused. Um, And if something should happen at an NHL game, if they decide to have fans back or some protocols, relax all the good work they did establishing a bubble and making it just a, in in every metric, a wildly successful playoff tournament. Um, And from a health perspective, a, a clean playoff tournament, it's, it really undoes a lot of that good work, and it's tough for the NHL to bounce back from, you know, setbacks like that.
1: Absolutely. So, okay, so that pretty much covers all the. I'm sorry. I'm. I'm piece, you may want to edit this part out. Hey, go ahead. Is there anything? Is there anything else that, to talk about? Because I got one last topic. I guess we can use as a stinger, as a final piece.
0: Oh yeah, so sting away. I'll I'll include. Uh, I'll include that, but. Go ahead and sting away and we'll we'll come up to our last uh talking point here.
1: Right. So, I just want to give a special shout out here to a uh 17-year-old junior player uh who was drafted by Drummondville of the QMJHL. He did something very important and brave. Uh he came out of the closet. Mm. And um you know, the player is Yannick Duplessis, and I completely butchered the name. I My French is non-existent. Um, for those who are unaware, he was born in St. Antoine in New Brunswick, Canada. Uh, he was born on March 3rd, so he's 17. Uh, he's 5'10 and 210 pounds. He played last season with the Moncton Rally Motors Nissan Flyers, which is a minor uh, midget league. So he's probably going to make the jump to major juniors uh, whenever that's starting, which actually is start could be very soon because they're having their preseason games right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to make that draft more interesting, is that we could have be players get on a heater and all of a sudden their draft stock rises like by 30 points or whatever. Okay. Anyway, but no, he came out of the closet. And, as, as, you know, there aren't very many openly gay hockey players. Um, it's one of those things that I think people presume they exist. You know, you hear rumors, I mean, whether or not it's right? <laughs> statistically, you, you say, sure. And and of course, I think more people want to gossip about that sort of thing because they think it's interesting. But, you know, this is not a player who's retiring. This is not a player who is at the end of his career and therefore, you know, doesn't lose anything, so to speak. Whereas this is a guy who could if he has a future in pro hockey, he's at the very beginning of it. Mm-hmm. And even if he doesn't make it to the pro level, he doesn't get drafted. I believe he would be eligible in next year's draft. I think if I'm reading the age correctly. Um, you know, remains to be seen, but, you know, I want to give a lot of credit to him because he's doing this, uh, you know, in a sport that doesn't have a lot of openly gay people. There's not a lot of openly gay people in men's professional sports, uh, throughout the world. So he's doing so at the junior major junior level in Canada. I wish him all the respect for doing so. And I hope he goes on to have a solid career and we'll see whether or not we're talking about him as a potential, you know, right winger in the future, since he's a right-handed shot.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think that's a great story, especially like you said, for a sport that you know culturally doesn't do a lot of the rumor mongering or drama, um, locker room drama, any any of the stuff you see from a lot of the other leagues. And in terms of the people watching the sport, hockey fans, I would say have. There's been a recent push to be more inclusive that everyone can play, uh, you know, race, sexuality, gender identity, what have you. But uh, right. we, we still haven't seen that many current players or future players uh, come out and say something. So I know it's hard for a culture in a sport that, you know, there's been a recent string of coaches being looked at for – being you know abusive in the minor league levels and it's very easy to um, be targeted if you say something like that so it's a brave thing to yep. do and um
1: yep it, and as we know in major junior hockey in canada especially there's a hazing problem mm-hmm. like there there are players who are <laughs> abused by the other players which to me you know again i'm 37 i'm and i'm not a hockey player i'm a hockey blogger in New Jersey. <laughs> You know, it's just maddening to me, like, this is your boy. This is your teammate. This is somebody that, you know, you're going to be reliant on and you're going to think it's a cool idea to, I don't know, harass him just because that's how you make him fit into the team. Like, that's just messed up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, credit to Yannick uh, for, you know, and again, he's 17, like being 17 is a very difficult time in your life. You know, being a teenager is never easy. You're trying to find your own voice in the world, your own identity, uh, beyond your sexuality, like, who, what are your values? What do you stand for? What do you want to do with your life? Like, at 17, those are all things that all of a sudden it's like, oh, I got to figure this stuff out. I can't just go play Call of Duty or Fortnite or and, and then go to school the next day. You know, I got to do something with my life. So, you know, um, it is a brave thing. And I think hopefully with uh, Yannick, more so than I want to see other players coming out, I want more players to be, again, accepting enough so this way it becomes more comfortable and, for lack of a better word, more normalized to do this since, you know, yes, we don't have a lot of the locker room gossip that, say, is in other sports, but, you know, this is a very tight... You know, hockey's a very tight-knit game. You know, you're reliant on your teammates for safety purposes. You're relying on them to succeed on the ice. So to an extent, you know, you, you want it to be an environment, your locker room to be an environment where people can be free to be themselves.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and doing all this against the backdrop of a global pandemic too is another layer of uh mental stress and anguish that everyone's yeah. kind of dealing with right now, but especially as a 17-year-old.
1: <laughs> yeah, but but again, it's a it's a good positive story that I wanted to end things with yeah, yeah. In, in the world of hockey since um you know, it it remains to be seen how often we'll get some devil's news upcoming. We don't know if the new assist new assistants will be hired anytime soon. And I'm sure there's going to be tons of speculation and what I'm going to call overthinking the draft. Since now we all have another three weeks and European hockey and potentially major junior hockey to reassess players and overthink and overvalue and overrate over who's now.
0: And not just the draft, <laughs> free agency good. also.
1: Well, yeah, but the free agents are likely done right now. so.
0: Yeah, no, I'm saying the over, overthinking.
1: Oh, well, yeah. (laughs) The
0: overthinking is very much a risk for uh, the free agency period coming up.
1: It almost makes you want to trade a fifth-round pick to talk to Joel Edmondson early.
0: (laughs) I mean almost, but still no. (laughs) Um, Okay, well, that all being said, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Uh, Thanks for bearing with us for the break. Had some personal stuff to attend to, and also not a lot of Devils news. But now that they're back, now that the news is flowing in, um, we should be on a regular, semi-regular schedule moving forward. And we might have to change up the times just as news gets more current as we get closer to the season. But we'll have uh, any sort of news about that included in the podcast post or on the Twitter page. So, again, for myself and John Fisher, thank you for joining us on the Garden State of Hockey podcast. We'll catch you next time and whenever you listen to this. Let's go devils.
1: Go devils.